This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, welcome to the New Books in Jewish Studies podcast, part of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Ari Barbalat. Today, I am honored to be in dialogue with Dr. Melila Helner Eshed. We will be discussing her new book, Seekers of the Face, Secrets of the Idra Rabbah, The Great Assembly of the Zohar, published by Stanford University Press, 2021. Melila, it's an honor to be in dialogue with you today. Oh, I'm delighted to be here and delighted that we can both talk about the Idra and about the book. So Thank here we you. go. Thank you. Please tell us about yourself. Where did you grow up? What formative events in your life inspired the scholar you would become as an adult? <laughs> Um, I was born in Jerusalem to parents that uh, came from the United States in the 40s uh, to Palestine, to then Palestine as um, um, as Zionists. And um, I grew up in a very uh, non-Orthodox and yet uh, very spiritual uh, and Jewish home. I never heard about the Zohar in my uh, youth or adolescence. Um, but I feel that, uh, um, the love of things having to do with mystery came from both my parents and that's something very wonderful. And then when, in, when I was 20, I went traveling and, um, and someone gave me a gift, um, which I didn't even know what it was. And I am not sure till today who gave me the gift, but when I was sitting in Norway, I was, uh, I opened the book. And I read a passage in English. I had no idea what I was reading. I was just so enthralled with what I read. Um, and then I saw that on the book it said Zohar, you know, translations into English. I had no idea translations from what. And I think that was it. That sealed that um, love for life. And all I felt was, you know, why didn't anybody tell me about this? And I want to know more. And um, basically all the rest is history. Everything else was um, finding the great teachers 
network, the Hebrew University, uh, my teacher, Yudha Libes, who's been my teacher for 30 and more years, and finding great, great teachers of, you know, comparative religions, of comparative mysticism, uh, but mostly learning how to swim in that, you know, great ocean of the Zohar. And um, I think that's what brought me to this place of not just enjoying to read and not just enjoying to um, teach, but also like taking the task of writing about it to the general public. That's what I would say. What inspired you to write this book? What message do you hope to convey to readers? Well, I wrote a book, uh, the previous one, before this book on the Idra, was a book um, called uh, A River Closed from Eden on the Language of Mystical Experience in the Zohar. And it was something that enchanted me. Like, can I, um, can I dare enter that big question of can I give language to the type of um, experience? Okay, like special, special kind of uh, uh, emotional, religious, spiritual, mystical experience that we find in the Zohar. Now, can I find a way to give it language? Can I find a way to put it in some kind of organized way without killing, killing the theme? And it was a, it was a very wonderful project, and I loved doing it. It was really kind of delving into the world of the Zohar, the world of Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, the great protagonist of the Zohar, and his group of uh, nine uh, disciples kind of entering into that world of, of mystical imagination and writing about it and it was it was a wonderful task of love and then years later years later after teaching for many years at the university and writing and teaching I thought okay okay it's time to go to the real intense text called the Idra Rabba, which is a special story found, um, found in the Zohar, the story of the great assembly of Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai and his disciples. We'll talk about it in a moment. Um, I mean, we have more and more moments to talk about it. And, um, and I thought to myself, dare I do this? And when I say dare I, I've said that pretty twice now since I've started there was something very, you know, kind of ominous. Here's a text that has uh, the status of kind of the Holy of Holies of the Zohar. It has that status both within the Zoharic text and in the way it has been received um, throughout um, the generations. And it's a very cryptic and difficult and complicated text to access. And I thought... Can I do this? Can I do this? Will it be okay? You know, I'm a woman. I am not orthodox. I did not come from a classical teaching and learning of uh, mysticism coming after other kinds of classical uh, rabbinic texts. And um, I'm not the traditional participant of this culture, right? So like, can I actually do this? And it was very interesting that I even felt like I need permission, permission. I need to feel that it's okay. 
So it took a while to kind of warm up. And then I said, no, I think I'm getting it. And if I am slowly feeling that I understand kind of the pulsating heart of this story and that it is so amazing and um, in its religious imagery and its theology and its mythical quality, I think I have the tools with which to convey it to other people because it's going to be too hard for them. So I spent 10 years in this story of the Idra Rabba and uh, three years of translating the Idra Rabba from Aramaic, which it's written in Doharic Aramaic to Hebrew, and then writing, you know, writing about the grand themes of this, of this story. So it really came about, first of all, because of a feeling that there's something ripe in me that I can now tackle this uh, very cryptic kind of um, text on the one hand, and on the other hand, a strong feeling that this is a time that actually, or our generation is a time that has ears in order to be attentive to the message and to the kind of uh, mission that the, that the Idra Rava conveys. What are the primary themes in your book? What story, quote unquote, does your book tell? Well, I first of all uh, found it important to, to describe it, to describe the great story of the assembly. Okay, this is a dramatic story um, describing a a kind of rite of initiation of the disciples of Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai uh, into pillars that the world can rest on, into spiritual pillars. And it's a fascinating story on that level. It's also a story of um, intense urgency from the point of view of um, the state. Divinity is in the world of humanity. And it's also a kind of very fascinating theology uh, portrayed in very mythical ways. Um, so, and I'll tell the story of it in a moment, but I just want to say that when I, I came to write about it, I thought, okay, the first thing, first of all, to describe what's happening. This is a story about the faces of God. You know, this very audacious kind of language in which uh, which the Idra Rabba uses um, to speak about divinity. So I felt that there was a need on, on the one hand to kind of um, uh, describe the book, allow readers to navigate through the complexities of the different stages of this assembly, and then also find a way to kind of back off and say, you know, with bigger strokes, like what is the Zohar actually trying to convey uh, in in this in this story? So, and and in what way can that relate to things that are of interest to to readers today, to religious spiritual seekers today, to um, students of uh, imagination and religious imagination. 
I think I think that was the way I chose to to organize the book and also knowing that for most people it's going to be just too complex to go into the into details I really divided the book into two parts so that the first part is really an overview of the big themes the big ideas of the big images of uh, of the Idra um, to allow readers that want to be at that level to to kind of uh, uh, feel satiated by what the first part of the book can give them and the second part is a much more close reading it's close reading of many segments many parts of the Idra Rabba of really going into the language into the special symbolism into the drama that's happening into the theology um so that was the structure that was the structure of the book but I think in order to understand that maybe we just have to talk about like what is the Idra what is the Idra um what is the story of the Idra Rabba so I think I can go into that Ari and just say something about Please. the story about Please. the story so um so the the Idra Rabba is a um, kind of emergency assembly that Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, the great hero of the Zohar, calls. We're going to even have a chance to look at the text in order to hear it. But I first want to tell a story, and then after that, uh, Ari and I are going to look at the text. But Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai calls from the corners of the world, from the corners of the field, he calls uh, his disciples, saying, um, we are in a moment of, of terrible danger. And the danger is that uh, the uppermost Torah, right? There's an aspect of Torah that is about to disappear from the world. And we have to get here together to use all the power that we have in us, in our intelligence and in our consciousness and our wisdom we have to get together and do this and and the opening of the zohar the the prologue really describes a beautiful kind of gathering that is very ceremonial uh it's kind of the opening of a mystical gathering and the teacher goes through different you know different uh, a ritual uh, aspects and prayers and weeping and coming together and holding hands they, they move into a field and they sit under a, under the trees and they kind of enter already into a special kind of uh, zone from the point of view of consciousness and then we slowly understand that the reason for the gathering is um, the need to heal uh, the faces of God. Now, you know, if you're in India, that's okay. But to hear that in Jewish mythology is like very, very uh, intense to say there is a need to rectify or to heal or to work with the faces of God. Um, maybe we'll have time to explain where that comes from. But mm -hmm. um, what Rabbi Shimon Baruchai does is that he invites his disciples 
like, uh, I would say, like an order of knights, okay, like a medieval order of knights, um, to muster up all their spiritual strength and all their intelligence and all their mystical power and um, and actually um, invoke and describe the face of the uppermost aspect of divinity. Now we have to remember that in the world of Jewish Middle Ages, both in philosophy and in Jewish mysticism and in Kabbalah, um, God is not portrayed in a simple way, you know, like an old venerable judge sitting on his throne or a king, or but rather uh, Kabbalah describes divinity as this dimension, this very dynamic dimension of different, of various qualities, various divine qualities that humanity comes into contact with. And whoever even knows just a little bit about Kabbalah has heard the term spirot, that spirot are the ways or the modes in which divinity is active within, within the world of humanity. What is very, very fascinating about the Idra is the Idra kind of puts that language on the side, which is amazing because this is all happening within the Zohar, but it puts the language of Sfirot aside and instead of that addresses divinity in the language of faces, the language of faith. And, um, and the call of the teacher is saying, there is an aspect of divinity that we are losing contact with, and that is the aspect of divinity as source, as oneness, as unconditional love, okay? That is the aspect of God called in the Idra Rabbah, the great ancient one, Atika Kadisha, uh, I mean, the holy uh, ancient one or the ancient of days, like we have the name in Daniel, or the great faced one or the one with, you know, with long breath, with an allocated long uh, breath, which means the patient one, if we were to say it in regular English. And... Um, and the teacher and the disciples uh, take part in this great um, um, bringing and invoking of this space of God as, as ever-present, ever-loving, ever-flowing love. And the reason that it's fascinating is because it's described in the language of a face, right? Now, if we were Neoplatonists, or if you were doing it in some, we would describe it as a fountain head and flow of water, or we wouldn't necessarily go into very personalized kind of language of faces. But in the Idra, even this highest, most um, aspect of divinity is described as a face. And the students and their teacher describe, you know, the skull, the brain within the skull of this divine aspect, the eyes, the forehead, the nose, 
the mouth. Um, and that is a very, very powerful part of the beginning of the Idra, just bringing about, just describing and connecting the descriptions of these aspects of that faith uh, and connecting them to verses in, in, in the Bible. And what is very amazing is that each aspect of this white face with long white hair and a long white beard, there's no description of a body. Each aspect of this face is a different aspect of love or it's a different aspect of flow. The light radiating from the eyes, from the forehead, from the hair, from it's a, it's a, it's an amazing it's an amazing description. And that is the first that is the first face of God that is invoked and and brought about by this text. And then, and then the teacher says, okay, you know, now we have to do the big, the big work. And the big work is invoking the, the second aspect of, um, or the second face of divinity. And that is the face of the Elpin, the face of the impatient or the short breath one or the, or the young one. And it is a description of a beautiful face, of maybe a young warrior, I would say. Um, it's a description taken, a lot of it is also taken from the lover in the Song of Songs. But it's a description of divinity, not as the source of just flowing love, but it's actually divinity as dualistic or binary uh, or discursive intellect or discursive mind and this is actually uh you know the god of israel the god of law the god of structure the god of yes and no of sides of left and right of of uh, uh ethical and spatial and temporal um concepts and the face of this um, I mean, this divine face called Ze'er Anpin uh, is described as a face which isn't always open and radiant like Atika, but being the face that is in contact with human behavior, it's also a very reactive face. And therefore, when humanity is acting in some kind of evil way, this face becomes contracted the eyes become bloodshot, the, the, the forehead becomes, you know, tense and contracted. And, and, and the teacher, Rabbi Shimon Baruchai, teaches the students and the disciples and us that the role of healing this contracted face is allowing it to gaze into the face of the holy ancient one and when when this younger face looks into uh into atika into the face of the ancient one there's a flow just a radiance a white radiance that just softens and widens and expands the face of um the short-tempered one, and allows the love to flow through it. Now, 
that's a description that's intense, intensely mythical, right? Mythical, but it's actually theology in mythical language, or it's or it's very theological myth. Okay, I would say I would say that, and that I would say that is the first part. That is the first part of the Idra is invoking these two faces and then creating, you know, kind of tilting up the face of Zeranpin so that it can be kind of inside that river of radiance radiating from, um, from Atika Kadisha. And when that occurs, and the face of Zerapin is expanded and softened, then there is great mercy on all of the worlds. Okay? There's a description. That's how, you know, the, the mercy kind of fills the places of uh, over-intensified judgment. Um, that's the story of the first part. Maybe I'll stop here for a moment, or if you have questions about that. But I'll just say that it is a very, very intense part of um, of of the idra, and um, and that it has in it, I would say, a theological statement that um, that was so fascinating for me that it made me want to write a book. Okay, and that was. That as a student of religions, you know, I had studied, uh, I had studied a lot about Gnosticism. I had studied a lot about the options that felt that there wasn't a way to contain divinity in kind of one one personhood or one entity, and there was a splitting, right? If if uh, if we're students of Gnosticism, we know that the splitting was that there's a good, wonderful, divine father, uh, upper God of love, and, and that this world and this world and the world of humanity is created by a demiurge, by a half God, by an evil God in many ways, that is keeping a, an angry God, that is keeping human beings from being in contact with their original source and the uppermost aspects of the Divine Father. Now, you could say, wait, the Zohar is speaking about three phases of divinity as this ancient one, then the short-tempered dualistic one, and then we'll come to the feminine later on. But it's very, it's very, um, it's very telling that you look at it and say, wait, this looks like Gnosticism. They split right, the aspects, and they're talking here about two faces. But I think the thing that most attracted me to the Idra was that the theological thrust wasn't to say, wait a second, let us just do away with this uh, God of law, of Torah, of structure, of boundaries, and you know, let's just open up to 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 divinity as oneness. And the idra doesn't go that way at all. The idra goes in the direction 
of understanding that we human beings, you know, kilu operate and and live uh, within a consciousness that is binary and dualistic and discursive and variegated and that delineates the differences between things. And that if that is the consciousness of God, right, the God of, uh, of the world, um, the idea is not to do away with that, um, with that aspect of God. But the question is, how can that aspect be kind of be in a state of optimal chesed, optimal love, optimal good wishing or good willing? So the image isn't of splitting in order to do away with one of the aspects of divinity, but rather to heal the face, to heal the face, which is, you know, another way of speaking about religion, to heal the face of God, meaning to heal the Jewish religion uh, by allowing it to be kind of flooded or awash in the light of um, divinity as source. I find that to be an amazing, amazing theological statement. Um that really finds a way to contain together or to integrate together dualistic consciousness and consciousness of um, oneness. And it was worth uh, spending years um, sitting there in order to discern and understand the intricacies of that language. Can you tell us your personal story? What does it mean to you to specialize in the study of the Zohar as a woman? What does it mean to you to study Jewish mysticism as a non-Orthodox Israeli? Well, I think there were years where it was just difficult, right? Because um, when I wanted to start studying um, Kabbalah and Zohar, there was no place um, for a non-Orthodox woman to do this at all except for um, the university. The university was the only place that did not question and was not interested who I am, what I am, where I come from. The question is, am I willing to do the work? And I think I'm, I have gratitude to the end of my life to the fact that there is, um, is that option. And, um, and for a long time, I thought, you know, I'm never going to, how am I going to accumulate all the stuff, all the stuff that the boys got? You know, when they were doing their yeshiva studies, when they were doing their early religious studies, and I didn't come from that background. And yet, I found after a few years that actually the fact that I am the outsider in a certain way gives me huge freedom in the way I, in the way I see and can talk about these very um, complicated, mythically dense texts, I have more freedom to talk about their, you know, their, their intense symbolism, their the sexuality within them. I felt it's easier for me, it's easier for me to check, to kind of gently open up these 
complicated texts and speak about them than it is for many of my colleagues. Um, so, uh, so that's been the path, I would say. That's been the path. And um, I think I also lucked out from the point of view that I didn't have teachers that were kind of um, um, very suspicious or very castrating or very kind of controlling, but rather the opposite. Uh, you know, great teachers, Yuta Libis and Moshe Idel, and all these amazing teachers that were actually just saying the exact opposite, like, you know, spread your wings, like fly off, little bird. Tell us what you see. And... Um, and that's something that is um, that is very special. And I was also thinking, like, when the first book came out, I said, who in Israel will be reading this book, right? Is it going to, how are people that are Orthodox, are they going to be willing at all to listen to what a non-Orthodox woman has to say about the Zohar? Like, but, you know, we live in a open societies where people choose what they do and what they listen to and from who they're willing to receive teachings. And um, I found that it's open gates in, in many, many places. So I'm kind of delighted about that. And I think the same happened with this book on the Idra Rabba when it came out that it very quickly became kind of the accompaniment for people, the accompanying volume that you hold when you try and read, read the Idra, which is just so complicated to understand, you know, on its own. So I'm very happy that um, um, to, be a, to be an Israeli and to be a woman and to be a Jew at a time that I can actually do that kind of stepping into these texts and really finding the right tone and the right voice that will be very, very, very respectful of these deeply uh, hallowed texts on the one hand, and on the other hand, to, um, to allow myself to open up places that are concealed and, and, and convey what I find there you know, be it wonderfully positive or negative, but to but to do it in a way that holds kind of an integrated respect to this uh, to these texts, and not kind of not go to the heretical or to kind of tearing the veil off uh, um, these myths, but actually gently going in and slowly trying to. Uh, understand and converse with these texts. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott, or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda, whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at sax.com. What are the aesthetic and spiritual differences regarding the presentation of God in the Zohar as a differentiated being vis-a-vis -vis presentations of God's oneness 
in other theological, philosophical, and religious traditions? Well, Ari, I think the nice part of the question is also the aesthetic, <laughs> the aesthetics of it. Um, you know, in all kinds of religious systems, we could just speak about the one and the many. Okay, the one and the many is a perennial question in philosophy and in and in the history of mysticism, right? Everybody's trying to figure out language for that and try to understand also how does all this, how does it, how does it occur that we have the many from the one and what is the relationship of the many to the one? Is it illusion, delusion? Is it dream? Is it real? Is it partially real? Is it a... Is it an offshoot? Is it uh, expansion of the one? What is it? And we have different languages and different religions. What is so fascinating is the choice of the ego to say, wait a second, let's talk about faces. And when you think of it, you know, you look at biblical language, the idea of the face of God is so important. It's way more important than we think. You know, that is the great benediction of the priestly, the priestly blessings is about, you know, may God shine God's face on you. May, you know, may we, may we merit to see that face, right? In the Bible, we say, if, if God's face is not with us, where can we go? We need, you know, we speak about being able to be in the presence of the face of um uh, of God, or the desire to see the wrath disappear from that face, and and love to be to be pouring forth from from uh, God's radiant face. And I think face face is something very very complex. You know, face isn't abstracted ideas, isn't an abstraction. You know, medieval medieval mysticism and medieval philosophy are like wild about abstractions. They're abstracting everything. And it seems that the people that wrote the Idra and that wrote the Zohar were really, really stepping in and saying, we do not go for abstractions. Abstraction is not the way to go in religion. I think partially what they're saying is, first of all, make no mistake, religion is not philosophy. Religion is relationship. It's events. It's somatic. It's experiences. It's emotions. But it's all the time about relationship. And, and therefore, their choice is to say, God, in a certain way, has lost God's face. In the great move of Aristotelian philosophy, God has become so transcendent, you know, so pure, so beyond, that actually um, God has lost God's face. And how can we be in relationship with a God like that? And how can a God like that face our human reality if God has no face? So it's kind of a brilliant moment where they say, no, we really need to, as my teacher Yudha Libis says, we have to give God back God's face. And that's what they're doing, these seekers of the face. So they're doing something that when one thinks of, uh, you know, if we're talking about aesthetic and religious kind of norms of Judaism, to be so... Uh, um, 
uh, anthropomorphic and describe the nostrils or describe the the path between the nose and the lips of God's face is like wild on the one hand. It's wild. It's psychedelic. It's wild. They describe it like from very zoom-in, close-up uh, descriptions. But um, but what they're doing is they're, they're really saying, no, we are theomorphic. And the affinity between the uh, kind of form of the divine and the human form, we share something Adamic, right? They call it Adam, but it's Adam. And the Adam part of it comes with the idea of face. We'll see later that it also comes with the idea of body. But um, describing God as face is not, is saying we don't describe God now in abstract qualities like love, wisdom, intelligence, grace, judgment. We want to now take you back. We want consciousness to be opened up to, to speak about divinity in the language of cheeks, in the language of, uh, of forehead. But it's looking at forehead or cheeks, not just as physical aspects of a physical face, but as this kind of, um, uh, I don't know, kind of filtering light of different qualities of divinity that because they're structured as face, they allow our face to meet in a certain way that face. That's a very audacious and artistic and imaginative, like wild imagination. And and they describe, you know, that upper face of Atika Kadisha is described as a totally white, white face, um, this white, radiant, milky light kind of flowing out of it. Whereas when they describe God as a dualistic God, God as dualistic kind of consciousness and thought, He's described as a young face with beautiful black curly hair, like the beloved, like the lover in the Song of Songs. And um, he is connected to the oneness. He is connected through, um, through the hair of the ancient one, the white hair that touches the locks, right? The locks, a very mythical kind of image that brings to life this face of the um of the dualistic um younger face of god or more more egocentric kind of uh face of god uh, who is also called the one who is outside it's outside of the oneness and uh it's described as a face filled with colors right whereas uh atika is all white this face has beautiful eyes that are green and there's colors of red and white in the cheeks and in the blackness of the eyebrows. So it's described as this kind of beautiful, beautiful regal um, um, face, but it carries, that face carries in it the fluctuation of wrath 
and patience and impatience and love, right? It's like weather, kind of the weather changes in what this face conveys. And that is the experience of humanity is according to the state of the face of that uh, aspect. I think maybe it's the it's the time in what we're talking about to say something about third faith. And um, the third faith is described in the Idra is the faith of God is feminine. It's the feminine aspect of God. So if the first face is totally white with white hair and the second one has black curls, the face of the feminine of God as feminine uh, Nukva is described as multicolored, many, many colors in the curls of her hair, okay, covering her face. And um, she appeared in a very, uh, in the very dramatic second part of the, of the Idra, where instead of only speaking about a different theological or mystical uh, connection, which is the connection and relationship of the gaze, of looking into the face of Atika. The second part of the Idra describes the emerging of a body, like an uh, um, androgynous body, right, that has on one side the masculine body, and on the back side, the feminine body, with a very intricate description of their genitals and the way they develop in this one body that is connected in its back. Okay. So, like the masculine and the feminine aspects of divinity here are assumed to first be totally connected in one body. And then once they have fully developed, these two aspects are kind of um, separate from each other, okay? They separate from each other where the masculine is all white and takes all the attributes of grace and of love and of mercy. And the feminine standing alone now is all red, and she's carrying all the fiery attributes of judgment, of power. Um, both of them are very, very unbalanced in this separate state. And what the Idra describes following rabbinic mythology is that this androgyne, this divine androgyne, once it is separated, is now ready to turn around and instead of being connected back to back, they can now turn and face each other face to face and come together into the full embrace of sexual intercourse, which is the, I would say, you know, this kind of image of the heroes gamut of the divine coupling is the is the is the is the goal of this whole complicated system of um, uh, emanation in a certain way is to say that there 
there's another way of healing. Healing isn't only kind of looking into the face of Atika, but healing is also brought about by bringing the masculine and feminine aspects of divinity um, to be in a state of harmony or in a state of communication or in a, a state of attraction of the difference to the different to each other to make up um, the one Adam. Adam in the sense of the masculine and feminine in this embrace of love. And that actually that is what allows both the masculine aspect of God and the feminine to be in their optimal um, optimal presence that allows divinity of oneness to flow into the world of duality. Okay, that's like, wow, it's an amazing idea. Into the two that have become one in that state um, of coming together, that is the vessel, that's the preparing of the vessel that will allow divinity as oneness to flow um, into our reality. So even though they're describing it as happening on high, that we're talking about the masculine body of God and the feminine uh, body of God and the bringing it together, it, they are, of course, speaking also about humanity, right? They're saying it is bringing together of the aspects of the masculine and feminine that when they are facing each other face to face, that allows the flowing in of the consciousness of oneness into, into our world as well. So I just want to say, I know these things sound very complicated, like what is she talking about? But this is the language of the Idra. The Idra chooses to say, no, we're going to talk about God in the language of body. We're encountering it through the somatic, through the embodied, through the sexualized. Uh, we do not see that as something that keeps us away from spiritual or religious understanding, but actually vice versa. Um, and that's something very, very um, fascinating. So the whole the whole um, aesthetics of this work is something very rare. It's also rare within the Zohar. There's only two stories that use this language, but saying, let's talk about God in the language of face and then in the language of body is a very, very powerful innovation in a way. So we have to say about that. Can you tell us about the personality of Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai? What is his personal story? Yeah, maybe I'll say some things to, it's also going to allow us to close kind of, uh, to close this, but um, you know, the Idra could have been written down like some kind of theological tractate, right? If we would have depersonalized and taken off all this without. But because the choice is the opposite choice, um, 
it is very beautiful that it's set within a story. And the story is the story of this great um, teacher, the great master Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, who is portrayed in this work. He's the choreographer, he's the teacher, he's the one who points out the different levels of consciousness attained in every moment of this um, great ceremony of the Idra. He's the one who notices moments of danger. He's the one who notices when, you know, the words of students are like, they're going beyond the pale of, he, he, he decides on, on the, on the, you know, he, he directs very, very profoundly the whole event. And um, he himself is portrayed as somebody who is both human and yet carries kind of, um, how would I call it? He's like um, transpersonal qualities um, connecting the world of divinity and the world of, of humanity uh, in this story and for his disciples. And and he's a he's an inc- he's portrayed in a wonderful way, both as the person convening all the students, or as the teacher weeping before the beginning of this ceremony, saying, "Woe to me if I reveal, and woe if I don't reveal." Like allowing the students to see the teacher in those moments, and also his role in kind of. Uh, regarding the fact that three of the disciples die an ecstatic death, mystical death, before the end of the ceremony, and the way the way Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai and the great teacher like tries to understand what this means, you know, what is the meaning of this? What, what in what way can the fact that they've left the physical world be part of this integrated experience. What does it mean about him as the leader of the group? He, 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 he's a he's the fascinating director, producer, shaman, master um, of this whole uh, of this whole event, and um, and you know, it's just that the next part of the Idra language in the Zohar, the next story is the small assembly, the Idra Zuta, right? Rabba means the great one and the Zuta means the small one. And the Idra Zuta is really the great story that tells the tells of the day of his passing from this world, the day of his of his death. Um, I think I wanna I wanna, you know, for I wouldn't like our conversation are to end before saying something about what is what does this language mean to us? Like what could it mean to people living in the 21st century? And and I think what I found inspiring, very inspiring, is actually to get to know this gem of, you know, classical Jewish mysticism on the one hand, just to know it, to even know that it exists. But what is living in it as a message is the idea of saying, 
um, this is a call for the healing of Judaism in a certain way from the point of view of the authors uh, and saying, we want to be part of this story. We want to be part of this religion, but um, the God of Israel, the way we have come to understand and speak about um, God is lacking. It's too contracted. As a religion, Judaism has based has placed so much energy on the discursive and on the binary and what's allowed and what's not allowed and what's ethical and what's not ethical and what's all all the laws of you know this side and that side that there has been a a lack or there's been a loss that must be kind of um, tended to on the one hand allowing Jewish language or Jewish religious language to be deeply connected to divinity of sorts, which is portrayed in the Idra as the face of Arichampin, the great face, or the very patient one. Um, and on the other hand, to allow Jewish religious language to be connected to the feminine to be connected to the language of the feminine, to the language of eminence, right? Not of transcendence, to, to the language of divinity within time. Divinity is indwelling within the human experience, within the body, within birth and death, that both the feminine and the and God is oneness are aspects that need to be nourishing um, the central image of um, of Yudhi uh, or or Zerampin or the god um, that is at the center of normative Jewish religious language. So I see that that um, invitation to speak about that not just in language of uh, wrath and critique but in coming together as a human endeavor to heal this is something that I feel really can resonate uh, in the minds and imagination of um, people today, of people today. Those are the things that I find fascinating. In the time we have remaining, could I ask you to interpret a text passage for us or with us. Um, yeah, let, let us try. I'd be curious to ask you about the quotation that you have on page 104. Um, you quote from the Zohar 3132b. Rabbi Shimon said, all lamps, you companions, who are all who are in this holy ring, I call the highest heaven and the highest holy earth as witnesses that I see now what no human has seen since the day that Moses ascended Mount Sinai the second time. I see my face shining like the light of the powerful sun that is destined to radiate healing for the world, as it is written uh, from Malachi 3.20, for you who revere my name, the sun of righteousness will shine, with healing in its wings. What, mm. Can you 
interpret this? Can you put this in context for us? Yeah, I would love to. Um, this happens not in the beginning of the Idra, but it happens like after they describe the first aspect of uh, of uh, the first face, the face of Atika Kadisha and its long beard and the flow that is the overflow of love flowing from it. Um, but when Rabbi Shimon makes this statement, um, it is a statement um, that on the one hand is ars poetic from the point of view of the whole Zoharic endeavor, but from the point of view of the teacher, he's saying to them something very powerful, positioning Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai vis-a-vis Moshe, um, Moses, vis-a-vis -vis Moses. And what he says here, he says, um, Moses was in the experience of being in contact with the divine, but he was not reflective or of it, okay? He was in the experience. When he came down from the mountain, his face was radiant, right? Like a sun also. But he did not know, right? The biblical text says it explicitly. Moshe did not know that his face was radiant. And I think the importance of this passage in the Zohar is that Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai is saying, we are, I am not, I am different than the biblical hero. Whereas Moshe is the bestower of the, of the written Torah, right? Torah Shabbat, the written Torah. And I would say Rabbi Akiva is the prince of oral Torah. Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai here is the bestower. He's the one who transmits the Torah, the teachings of mysteries, right? Of secrets, of the thought, of the world of, of secrets. And I think he's saying here, what is different between me and Moshe is that I am both in the, in the intensity of this experience and I'm also aware of it. I'm also reflective of the fact that my faith is radiant. And the fact that I am aware of it does not take away from the experience. You know, we generally think that you're either in the experience or you're reflecting on the experience. But he's saying, no, I am seeing my face shine. And it's also kind of an intense statement. You know, you'd expect it from some halaj or some Sufi master to say, I am now experiencing myself as the radiant sun it doesn't bring burning or wrath. It brings healing. But I think it's saying, um, I see myself either reflected in your faces, my disciples, or being reflected in the world around me. But I can see that I am now in a state of uh, maybe the motto of the Zohar from the book of Daniel that says, um, and the enlightened ones shall shine like the radiance of the sky. And I think this is one of those moments where he's saying, I am experiencing the radiance. And as a teacher, I will not stop saying something about it to my students and know that this radiance is something that will, that is actually preparing the way for a change of consciousness that will come about 
in the end of days or so I think I think that's it's a very very powerful statement there in the middle of the of the Idra um so it also I'm happy that we could kind of open up a little sliver of a Idraic text because it also gives us a sense of the language, the language, the drama, the pathos, um, the grandness of it. So thank you for uh, kind of opening up the text as well. Okay. As we bring our dialogue today to a close, can you tell us about your current research? Uh, what are you working on now? Is there any connection between your current work and this very book? Um, I'll say that after spending years inside of the um, intensely uh, complex world of the Idra, uh, my choice was to go very much in a different direction after this. And uh, during the um, shutdowns, of uh, COVID, me and a very dear colleague of mine, Omri Shasha, uh, sat and together on Google Docs composed a beautiful new introduction to the Zohar, which is very needed um, both in the Israeli um, um, world, but uh, we've also finished translating it into English and it's gonna be coming out in Brandeis University Press uh, this kind of 23, I hope. And it was a beautiful choice of saying, you know, after being in that, in that world of the Idra, now just do that gift of love of, um, of writing a book that is scholarly and not academic, um, of all the things that, uh, we've learned to love and love teaching in the Zohar that will be open to the general public, both uh, for the Hebrew readers and for the English language readers. And that book is coming out in Israel in a month. And I hope that it will be coming in English in the next year. And that's been a, it's been a great, great pleasure to be working on it. We're still working on that. So um, it's kind of the other side it's the other side of, uh, of, of the Idra saying, no, now let's go into the wide kind of wide angled um, look at the whole, at this whole incredible uh, work of Jewish uh, mystical imagination. So that's what uh, we're working on. And I think the book is gonna be called On the Path of the Tree of Life. So I'm very delighted that that's the new thing coming up. Amazing! It will be it'll, it will be a, ma a masterpiece. It will be really, really, um, re really something when it when it's out and available. As we bring our dialogue today to a close, I'm your host on the New Books in Jewish Studies podcast, Ari Barbalat. Today, I have been in dialogue with Melila Helner Eshed to discuss her new book. Seekers of the Face, Secrets of the Idra Rabbah, The Great Assembly of the Zohar, published by Stanford University Press 2021. Melila is a senior research fellow of the Kogod Research Center at the Shalom Hartman Institute in Jerusalem. Thank you. <laughs>